Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer this morning. It is astonishing, Jesus, what you suffered, your passion, the death that you endured on the cross in light of your kingship. Lord, for you reign over all. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You are the redeemer, the one who is moving history forward to its culmination. So Lord, we come before you this day in deep thanksgiving for your goodness and your grace for what you have done on our behalf to secure our salvation that we might be called children of God. Lord, bless our consideration of your word this day, that it might apply to our lives and we might live with greater commitment and love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we, we are going to take a look at the triumphal entry today. This, that's our passage for this morning. But before I do, I do want to say just a couple things. First, I want to extend my sympathy and our church's sympathy to the O'Brien family. Uh, Greg lost his dad this week. Uh, didn't have to do with uh, the corona uh, COVID-19, it wasn't an issue associated with that. He's just an older man who uh, had health issues and his family has been taking care of him. And we're just very sorry, Greg, and want to extend our love to you and to Maggie and your kids. And in the same way, our hearts are broken today for the Rothnader family. Uh, Joel Rothnader uh, passed away this, this last week and uh, the Rothnader family worshipped with us for many years. They returned to Switzerland. Uh, we miss them dearly, and we just want to extend our love to them and uh, let them know that they are in our prayers this day at the loss of Joel, Daniela, Elias, Amos, Naomi, Thea. We love you, and we are we are praying for you through this difficult time that God would bring comfort to you. And this. This truly is, it's just a hard time in so many ways. For our own family, we've, you know, we were, as you know, away in Europe for a couple weeks in the earlier in March. And, well, we've been two weeks just at home in, in quarantine. And, and, and that's, that's been tough. That really has been. I, I know the different things that you're going through, uh, they're, they're tough. I uh, want to say that, uh, you know, our family, we left on March 8th after I preached and we went to Spain. Uh, we spent a week there or so and then uh, our kids came back. Laura and I uh, went on to England for a few more days and and you can only imagine what uh, an experience that was in light of everything that was unfolding. It was a trip of a thousand sermon illustrations that I'm sure in the future I will uh, share with you. 
But there is one thing I want to share from you or for, uh, with you about our trip. When we landed in Malaga, Spain, the sun was just shining. And when we woke up the next morning in Salabrena, Spain, we were greeted with the most beautiful sunrise over the Mediterranean Sea. A couple days later, we went to Cordoba. And wouldn't you know it, when we woke up the next morning in Cordoba, the sun rose again. We went on to uh, Seville, and the sun was still shining. A couple of days later, we went to Granada. And when we got to Granada, we were just toasty warm because of the sun shining down on us as we were sitting at a cafe overlooking the old city. Well, the kids went off, and we uh, headed to London. And on our way, we had uh, a layover in Madrid. And wouldn't you know it, that terminal was just filled with the warmth of the sun. And the next morning when we woke up in London, there it was. The sun rose again. And a couple more days, we uh, went to Windsor. And every morning we woke up, the sun continued to rise in all of its glory. On our way home, we were stuck in Toronto, Canada for 10 days. Uh, I'm sorry, not 10 days, 10 hours. <laughs> Felt like 10 days. Uh, for 10 hours. And the entire time the sun was shining through those terminal glass panes. And I want to report to you that when we woke up in Boston the next morning, indeed, the sun rose again. And I know we are in the midst of a tough time, but I want to testify to you and witness to you that God is providentially caring for Spain. God's sovereignty extends over England. His rule extends over Canada. And if you look out your window right now, as I look out the church glass panes, I can see that sun is still shining, that the Lord continues to reign above here in New England and across the world. He is sustaining his creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, they declare the glory of God. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about what your uh, uh, don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can one of you worrying add a single hour to your life? Jesus asks. Every place we went, the sun rose, 
And as the sun rose, I heard Spanish birds, I heard English birds, I heard Canadian birds, and I heard birds in Boston filling the air with songs for another glorious day. I heard them again this morning as I woke up. And I know some of you are having a hard time right now. But I want to tell you something I've told you before. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God is with you and he has all of this. Everything that's unfolding before us in these days, he has those things in his hands. So be brave. Be courageous. Be optimistic. Work hard to bless others. Why? Well, because the Lord your God is with you. He's with you. Of course, this is not just a logical conclusion from observing creation, of observing the sun and the birds. This truth saturates scripture throughout. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all, Psalm 103 tells us. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place. I will do all my will, the Lord says in Isaiah 46. And that's really been one of the fundamental truths of the Gospel of Mark as well. The whole first half of the Gospel of Mark showed us through the power and authority which Jesus displayed on earth that he's God, that he's sovereign, that he has all power, that he's the Messiah, that he's our Savior. Who else could control the winds and the waves? Who else could give sight to the blind? Who else could, could rebuke the demons and cause them to shudder and flee? Mark goes on in chapters 9 and 10 to explain through stories in light of who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, to take up our cross and deny ourselves and, and to follow him. But here, starting with our passage today, chapter 11, Mark focuses in on the primary work Jesus came to accomplish as the Messiah. The last seven days of Jesus' life recorded in Mark, it takes a third of the book of Mark to unfold, chapters 11 through 16. All the previous chapters, they all lead up to this point. The gospel is shaped as a long journey to Jerusalem, that we're on our way with Jesus to Jerusalem as we read on from chapter to chapter. And now here we are, chapter 11. We're arriving at the city gate. And so what do we find out about Jesus? Well, first we find out that, well, what 
what's about to unfold in Jerusalem, it's holy of his own doing. That Jesus is in control of everything that's about to come to pass. It's his work. Mark spends the first six verses of chapter 11 framing that truth for us. He writes, as they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you what you're doing or why you're doing this, say, well, the Lord needs it. And, you know, he'll, uh, we'll bring it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street. Tied at a doorway as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. That's just extraordinary detail. It's an extraordinarily detailed account for just this pedestrian issue of how the disciples obtained the cult. And Mark does the same thing when he explains in chapter 14 how the Last Supper was set up. He writes, So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, what is my, uh, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the the Passover meal. Okay, I mean, think about that. It, super detailed description, which, if you know the Gospel of Mark, is quite surprising because he's so concise and he's fast moving. Why would he spend so much time on these pedestrian issues to describe in ex exquisite detail exactly how? the donkey was obtained, or the table was set, the room was found for the Passover meal. Of course, Mark's point is that what was unfolding from chapter 11 through chapter 16 was squarely being orchestrated by Jesus, even down to the smallest detail. It was his idea. It was his plan. It was his call. He purposed it to come about as he desired. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, Jesus says in John 10. From the triumphal entry to the Last Supper, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the cross, to the tomb, Jesus was the one 
Who was driving the narrative? Who was making it all happen? The second thing we learn about Jesus in this passage is that, well, Jesus, he had a crystal clear understanding of who he was. I mean, sometimes you'll hear critical scholars uh, say things that, you know, like that, well, Jesus didn't view himself as a savior or a messiah, and certainly not as God himself, that that was a later construction uh, by the early church, perhaps from Pauline theology or somewhere else. But what we find here is four different witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they describe Jesus as choosing to sit upon a colt as he entered Jerusalem. And as soon as he put his backside upon that donkey, there was no doubt who he was telling the world he was. Of course, lots of other people were streaming into uh, Jerusalem at this time for Passover, uh, but it was standard for the, the Passover pilgrims to walk into the city, singing songs of ascent, uh, Psalms 120 to 134 as they ascended into the city, then on to the, the temple. But that's not how Jesus entered. He made a clear choice not to walk, but instead he chose to ride on a colt. And the songs that were surrounding him, they weren't being sung to an unseen God. These songs, they were being sung to Jesus and about Jesus and for Jesus. It was a message that could not be missed. A thousand years before When David chose Solomon as his son to secede him, do you know how it happened? Uh, He said to his attendant, David said to his attendant, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule. Take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok, the priest, And Nathan the prophet, anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpets and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, you'll go up to Jerusalem. And he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Then about 500 years later, after the exile, after uh, Jerusalem had been wiped out and they had come back to Jerusalem and, and rebuilt the temple and, and the city walls and, and there was this developing hope of the reestablishment of the Davidic kingship, 
The prophet Zechariah says in chapter 9 of his work, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, echoing back the riding of Solomon into the city to be anointed as king. The expectation was a new Solomon, a new king in David's line would come and be established. There's no doubt Jesus viewed himself as, he, as king as he entered Jerusalem. He set himself up to be understood as king through this action. And, and that's an astonishing act of self-disclosure at this point in the Gospel of Mark. Because over and over again, as hints of Jesus' identity unfolded from chapter to chapter, chapter in the earlier parts of Mark, Jesus admonishes his disciples. He admonishes those he heals. He admonishes even the demons to be silent and not to reveal to anybody who he actually is. But not here. From chapter 11 on, there is no longer any veiling of his identity. He neither rebukes those who are spreading their cloaks and branches before him, uh, nor the crowd as they sang Hosanna to him. In fact, just the very opposite happens. In the Gospel of Luke, the, uh, the Pharisees tell Jesus to silence his disciples, and Jesus replies to them, if I tell, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, his true identity as king was put on display because the king came to accomplish the king's business. And what was that? What was the king about to do? Well, consider where Jesus wanted to go in Jerusalem. Where he ends up. Verse 11 says that Jesus entered, to Jeru entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked all around at everything, but since it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. But then what happens the next morning? It says that when he returned to Jerusalem the next morning, he went right to the temple again, and he began to overturn the merchandise tables that filled the courtyard, saying, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Why was Jesus so focused on the temple? First place he goes to the temple, the next morning he's in the temple, he's turning everything over. Well, that's because that's the very heart of what he came to do. He, he came to accomplish covenant renewal 
a reestablishment and a renewal of God's connection, God's relationship with his people. And that's what the central purpose of the temple was. The place where God would meet with mankind. And, and so that's what good kings were about. They were about renewing the covenant and renewing the temple. If you take time to read through 2 Chronicles, you'll observe a pattern of covenant renewal. After a reign of a bad king or perhaps the secession of bad kings, God raises up a new king over his people, a godly king. And this king is described as one who follows in the ways of his father, David. And do you know what the first thing those kings always did? They restored the temple. The king would cleanse it of idols and rebuild it and renew it for authentic worship and prayer to the Lord as a plate place to meet with the living God. It happened with King Joash, with King Jotham, with King Hezekiah, King Josiah, and, and on and on. You can read through. And so right to the temple, Jesus goes upon his arrival to Jerusalem to do that which the good king should do to renew and restore the temple. There was no doubt who Jesus was. He was manifesting himself as the rightful king of God's people from the line of David, the son of David, the son of God, who would renew God's relationship with his people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that these two acts, his public manifestation as king and his focus on temple renewal, they were the two grounds of accusation which led to his death. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Those are the two accusations levied against Jesus by his detractors. And you know what? If they're very serious charges, unless, of course, he truly was their king, whose job it was to renew the covenant between God and his people and renew a temple where God might truly dwell among his people once again. But Jerusalem, they didn't want anything to do with this. They didn't want this king. They did not want a renewed temple that he would build. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you, hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so what they do? Jerusalem threw everything they had at him. The temple guards, a traitorous friend, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Herod, the high priests, the chief priests, Pilate, Roman soldiers, frenzied crowds, and it all led to what we just read a moment ago. His suffering, his passion, and his death. But guess what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter what Jerusalem threw at him because the king had come to accomplish what the king set out to accomplish. He was sovereign. He was in control of everything that was unfolding. None of what he faced in Jerusalem was a surprise to him. In fact, he told his disciples three times in chapter 9 and 10 exactly what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and, and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. As assuredly as the disciples found the tied donkey and the man with the water jar so too would Jesus not only die, but he would rise again. You see, this new Davidic king was the king, the one who was prophesied about for hundreds of years, who was longed for by the remnant of God's people, this king was going to bring about covenant renewal in a way that had never been experienced by the people in Josiah's time, the people in King Hezekiah's time, the far superseded even what Solomon and David had experienced in the glory days of the Davidic kingdom and the kingdom of Solomon. This covenant renewal would be brought about in fullness through the sacrifice of a priceless offering for the sins of God's people that had effective and lasting power that would be accompanied by the outpouring of God's spirit to build a new temple that would expand throughout the world a place where God would dwell and meet with his people. What was unfolding from chapter 11 through chapter 16 
was squarely orchestrated by Jesus Christ. It was his idea. It was his plan. It was his call. He purposed it to come about as he desired. The king was all about accomplishing his purposes and the high priests and the chief priests weren't going to stop him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they were not going to thwart him. Neither were the Romans, nor the cross, nor Satan, nor the gates of hell, nor death itself. Because he's the king. Jesus is the king. And I really can't think of a timelier reminder for you and me today. When was the last time you felt your life to be so out of control? Your boss tells you you can't work. Your government's telling you to stay home. Your health is at risk. Your finances are at risk. You've been separated from your family and friends. The life you've known seems to be at risk of disappearing for good. You look to the days ahead and, and our president's telling us it's just going to get worse. We see chaos. We see suffering. So let me say to you again, be strong and courageous. Do not fear and do not be discouraged. Why? Not just because the sun keeps rising day after day, but because the Son of God rose from the dead even after all that happened to him on the way to the cross. Because the same Jesus who rode into Jerusalem manifesting his kingship, the same Jesus who orchestrated the last seven days of his life through chaos and abandonment, through hardship, through suffering, through death, and eventually to resurrection, is the same Jesus who has sovereignty and control over your life right now. He is in control, orchestrating everything that is unfolding around us. So Paul tells us, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then he goes on in Romans 8 to say, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And he tells us, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, neither heights, nor depths, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe this? 
Is the king who rode into Jerusalem and orchestrated our salvation from sin, is he king of your life, working things out for the good according to his good purposes? Do you believe that you are not just conquerors, but that you are more than conquerors through him? Do you believe that nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Peter tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The king is still all about covenant renewal, about cleansing his temple, about reestablishing a relationship between you and the Lord. Picture Jesus entering the temple and just taking it all in and looking it all over to know how just to make it pure and good and right and pleasing to God again. Because you know what, brothers and sisters? Jesus is looking at you. He's looking at you as his temple this day. And he's judging and thinking and wants to cleanse you and renew you and restore your relationship with him in new ways, in fresh ways that have not been achieved before. And so we cry out to Lord Jesus, Hosanna, save us, ride on, ride on in majesty, King Jesus, and renew your people this day, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.